2: so to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at Mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 upfront for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at Mintmobile.com. This is News Fighters. Book Club, where we fight the news so you don't have to. With Dylan Behan.
0: Hello, Fighters, and welcome to another edition of the News Fighters Don't Sue Me, Oprah Book Club. Now, we're right in the middle of the election season, and one uh, issue I wanted to talk about in some depth, this election campaign, was education, and uh, how our education system seems to have gone backward since Julia Gillard and the Gonski reforms. Now, unfortunately... I don't know much about the education system. I was barely educated myself. I did some homeschooling. That's why English no good for me bad sometimes maths either. So uh, I did find someone who does know something about uh, the Australian education system. In fact, he wrote a book about it called Waiting for Gonski, How Australia Failed at Schools. Uh, Yes, I was lucky enough to interview one of the co-authors of that book. Um, by Tom Greenwell and Chris Bonner. Tom Greenwell, uh, who had a chat with me about the book uh, and about how uh, Australian school funding, federal funding, has gone backwards uh, since Ju- Julia Gillard and Gonski. And uh, it's a fascinating read, a real scary horror story about how Australia's very unique in the world in how it funds its schools and how it kind of keeps... Digging a hole backwards on school funding due to political pressures. Very, very interesting book and very apt uh, this election campaign uh, when education should be talked about a lot more, if you ask me. Uh, so here he is. I chatted to him a couple of weeks ago. Tom Greenwell, author of Waiting for Gonski. <laughs> All right, joining me now on News Fighters is one of the authors of the great new book Waiting for Gonski, How Australia Failed at Schools. Uh, Joining me now is Tom Greenwell. Um, Tom, it's a fascinating book. It's kind of a real-life horror story detailing the the history of school funding in, in Australia and why it's kind of evolved but evolved
3: badly and keeps getting stuffed up is that a, is that a fair
0: uh, is that a fair description
3: yeah i think that's i think that's absolutely fair i mean if you take the situation we're in now you know the gonski report 10 years ago said we need to spend our um we need to spend smarter we need mm. to allocate school funding according to need yes needs-based. and that would needs-based you know so um just a reminder for everyone out there what that meant is a baseline per student amount for everyone and then there would be additional funding loadings reflecting categories of disadvantage whether it's um low low income whether it's disability indigeneity low english proficiency regional or, or remote location um and and what the review said is you know the 75% of the additional funding should go to public schools, reflecting the fact that that's where the overwhelming amount of disadvantage is. Mm. Um, What has happened instead is that funding has increased five times as fast to um, the private sectors as it has to the public sector, to the point where in 2018 the ABC could report that one-third of non-government schools receive more taxpayer funding than at least half of comparable public schools. Wow. You know, and that is, there's a this is a really complicated topic. You know, we all have um, views about it and we bring lots of, different you know, the, the deepest values, right? That's how mm. we feel about equality, freedom and all that. And yep. It's really complicated. I get it. But nobody out there actually says uh, private schools should receive more taxpayer funding than public schools. But somehow that's what we're doing in an awful lot of cases. So um, you're dead right. This is uh, a, a bit of a horror story. And what's your background in terms of what made you want to
0: write the book? You just uh, think this is an issue that we need to be, that's been forgotten about, we need to talk about more?
3: So, so yeah, I started teaching a few years before the Gonski Review. Mm. Um, but I guess when the Gonski Review came along, I was, you know, on a steep learning curve professionally. But at that point where... I was also increasingly conscious that there are a whole lot of systemic issues that were probably making my job harder and certainly making the job of a lot of my colleagues out there across the country harder. Mm. And, and you know, I, I got swept up in the process of the Gonski Review and the optimism of it. Um, my school was one of 6,000 public schools across the country that made a submission to the Gonski Review. And, um, you know, it felt like a a really consultative thorough methodical process and then it came up with this report which seemed to transcend a lot of the um sector you know the traditional hostility between the sectors mm. and even with um even got some significant um, bipartisan support you think about particularly the new south wales coalition government Barry O'Farrell and the Nationals mm-hmm. Education Minister Adrian Piccoli um, supporting Gonski, uh, it, uh, it, it, it felt like a breakthrough. And so um, I was very much, you know, personally involved in that optimism and, um, uh, and, and I guess a major vehicle of that for me was um, my involvement in the Teachers Union, the Australian Education Union, whom I, um, I worked for for a few years. Uh, and, and um and. You know, so um, I I remain a teacher now, but I also write on education issues. Um, And and as I was saying, given my personal involvement and commitment to this issue, it was something at this point that I felt we need to come back to. Mm. So I reached out to um, a guy called Chris Bonner, who's um, a retired school principal in Sydney and um, is a wonderful writer on education. He's written a couple of great books with Jane Caro. And um, I really admired his work. And I kind of put this idea to him and um, very happily he, um, he, uh, he agreed to it. And um, so that's how, we, that's how Waiting for Gonski came about. And it kind of all
0: goes back to, to, to John Howard. He, correct me if I'm wrong, ever since him, private schools have been receiving more funding. Um, is that correct? Uh, per yeah. student than, than public schools, or it's been increasing. Before Gonski, it was already coming off uh, uh, high, uh, large amounts of funding going to private schools, and and it's
3: kind of got worse in the last 10 years, correct? Gosh, where do we start the story? <laughs> uh, because, I mean, I think the, th- the thing to remember is um, historically, uh, you know, for a century, you know, from the end of the 19th century for, um, until the introduction of state aid, in the 1970s, we had this Catholic system that was really underfunded, mm. um, where, which was mostly populated by, you know, kids from Irish Catholic backgrounds who are pretty working class. Um, so you had a very disadvantaged um, Catholic sector, particularly mm. state aid is introduced in the late 60s and early 70s. Um, largely to address that injustice. But um, it was introduced without thinking about, Okay, so we're providing taxpayer funding to these schools. Are there going to be some commensurate public obligations about maybe your fees are regulated, maybe um, the way you enrol students is regulated and so on? And what happened over the subsequent half century is that the amount of state aid gradually crept up and up to these schools, where we got to the point you know, as I was referring to before, that many non-government schools are are public schools in the the level of funding they receive. Mm. They receive just as much public funding as a public school in similar circumstances. Mm. And, and look, to your question, you're absolutely right that in that trajectory over the last half century, the Howard government played a decisive role because they amped up the funding to non-government schools. I mean, it doubled. Uh, wow. So by the end of the Howard government, you had a situation where Commonwealth's funding, um, over two thirds of that, was going to um, non-government schools. Remember, only a third of students are in non-government schools. Yep. Um, and just a third of Commonwealth funding was going to, to public schools. Uh, so there was a massive, massive um, investment of Commonwealth's government funding in private schools and um that's helped create this situation today where um you know most private schools have a very significant resource advantage over public schools and they enroll um much more privileged kids on average there's mm-hmm. huge diversity of course but yeah you only need to drive past your local private school and then your local public school to even see that difference really <laughs> yeah yeah well well you know I mean, we look at this in the book, but pretty much every town you go to, you know, for instance, um, the Gonski panel went to Alice Springs. Mm. And what you find there is, you know, um, public schools, both primary and secondary, which have an overwhelming majority of really disadvantaged kids, mostly Indigenous kids. Mm. And then you go, you know, just a few minutes drive away and there's a Catholic school. Um, not the, not the highest fees in the world by any means, but enough to mean that it's prohibitive um, for a lot of people in that community. and there's much fewer indigenous kids at the Catholic school, uh, much fewer disadvantaged kids generally. Mm. And then, and then you have and it's the classic hierarchy across Australia, there's a high fee independent school mm. where the, the student profile is, is even more privileged. So what our school policy has really created in Australia, in every town and suburb is a kind of socioeconomic hierarchy. And and just to be really Mm. clear about this, um, we have the fourth most segregated school system in the OECD. Mm. Our schools are more segregated than in Russia or in Tunisia. Wow. And what that tells us is, of course, location matters and there are disadvantaged suburbs and towns, of course. But our education policy, public policy settings are... um, really exacerbating the effect of location and driving disadvantaged kids into the same schools as each other.
0: And the great thing your book talks about is um, peer effects. And it talks about how having these different tiered, these different systems kind of drive inequality. It's quite fascinating. And our system just increases inequality and no political party kind of wants to go near this. Gonski tried to address that, right, but it didn't really have it was kind of hobbled by, its, um, by what uh, Gillard uh, the, the, t- told them to do in terms, of, um, right. um, in terms of not taking
3: any funding away from any schools, correct? Right, right. Yeah, so let's break this down. I mean, hmm. I think when we think about Gonski, we hmm. think about money, of course, yes. right? Yeah. Um, is that how we allocate money to schools? But here's the thing, and the Gonski report showed this. In one of the most important resources in any school are the kids, right? As a teacher, I think all teachers out there will get this, right? If you have a class full of, um, you know, high-performing, motivated kids from families who really value education, mm. um, not only is that a lot easier task than other contexts, those kids feed off each other. There's a kind of a, a competitive spirit. Um, there's, they bring a whole lot of background knowledge. And so, the point here is, is that learning of any one student is heavily affected by the other students in their cohort. And so going back to what we said about concentrations of disadvantage before, if you take a disadvantaged kid and you stick them in a school with lots of other disadvantaged kids, which is exactly what we're doing, mm. you are making their educational opportunities um, much, much more narrow and their chance of success much less. And that's the peer effects you're referring to. Mm. And Gonski, one of the outstanding features of the Gonski report is it said um, it, it, it emphasised the power of peer effects. In fact, it, it pointed to research that said the socioeconomic background of the kids in your class, the other kids in your class, has at least as powerful impact on your learning outcomes as your own family background, your parents' socioeconomic mm-hmm. circumstances. That's how big it is. And, um, and, and, and the thing about Gonski, the report, Mm. is it was great in terms of saying we need to allocate the money more sensibly we need it to be needs based but it never got to this deeper question about how education policy settings are driving concentrations of disadvantage in some schools mm. the, the unregulated fees the unregulated enrollment practices mm. the resource dis- the taxpayer fueled resource disparities and that's what's creating these really negative peer effects so that um, uh, even if you get the money right, there's these structural issues which remain unaddressed. Mm. Uh, now, now the further point uh, which, you, which you alluded to is that even getting the money right has escaped us to this point. You know, mm-hmm. a, as we started out, Gonski said we needed a needs-based sector-blind funding system. What we've done over the last 10 years is the opposite. It's been sector-based and needs-blind. Yeah, well, that was my next point. I
0: mean... Education and Gonski's kind of taken a back backseat uh, with the elevation of Morrison as Prime Minister and then with COVID. Um, last I heard, Morrison tried to launch this thing called Gonski 2.0 in around uh, 2017, 2018. Uh, sorry, uh, uh, Turnbull did. Um, what, what's happened the last few years? Where are we at? Has it just completely been forgotten about?
3: Yeah, look, I, I think the where we've got to is um, uh, Morrison – created uh, a national school reform agreement a couple of years ago, which um, let the states off the hook in terms of their obligation to deliver um, needs-based funding in their schools. So we've now got a situation where public schools, which are overwhelmingly funded by state governments, Mm. um, in most jurisdictions they won't reach even 90% of the schooling resource standard, the kind of the needs-based standard gonski set out they won't reach that until 2030 um, because the morrison government has um, really removed any obligation for state governments to increase their funding so we have ever escalating commonwealth government funding which is mostly going to private yep. schools um, and, and and often meaning that they're overfunded according to the needs-based standard um, and And public schools continue to be underfunded and I, f- I think you know one of the reasons we wanted to write this book, Dylan, is that we felt that we were kind of drifting along in a post-gonsky torpor. Mm. People out there kind of had a feeling that Gonski was a great idea. We weren't really sure whether it had been implemented or not implemented or distorted and um And the whole impetus, which, you know, there was a really broad-based national consensus Mm. which originally arose up uh, around Gonski. And I think one of the most stark illustrations of that is that when Turnbull tried to tack to the centre and differentiate himself from the Abbott government, Mm. the issue he chose was school funding and to Mm. try and claim the Gonski mantra. Um, But that impetus has really been lost. And so we, you know, we're we're writing this book in a way to say, this is too important to ignore. We've mm-hmm. failed um, in a very basic way, and we need to um, we need to attend to this and and, in a sense, um, start again.
0: And uh, given we're in the middle of an election campaign, and correct me if I'm wrong, I think Australia's still sliding in the OECD ratings, correct? Why isn't this a bigger election issue, do you think? It should be huge.
3: Yeah, well, you, you're, you're right. You know, Australian school students are about a year of learning behind where they were in 2000, according to wow. these PISA tests, and that's in, you know, reading, science, maths and science. Um and uh yeah, so this is a, a, a and a, you know the gap separating disadvantaged and advanced students is about three years of learning on average, wow. so it's an acute problem facing our community, and it should be um, absolutely up there in lights as a major election issue uh, you know i th- I think the answer to your question is we know the Albanese opposition is pursuing a small target strategy mm. and you raise school funding and it's a very divisive issue and, and um hit lists, <clears throat> winners and losers, all those all, tropes all, all come that out stuff. again. Yep, yep. All that stuff. And look, in fairness to in fairness to the um opposition to, to Labour, they've got a strong policy to deliver needs-based funding uh, much more fully and much much more quickly um than the Morrison government. And um a change of government would be a huge win for um many, many disadvantaged kids across our community. Um, but it, so but, but it is very much Labor's very locked into we're going to deliver more money to all schools and we're going to make everybody happy, and that's politically understandable. But they don't want to address the fundamental issues that really arose out of the Gonski report about this unlevel playing field where we have very, we've got unregulated fees, very different enrollment Practices and obligations, and um, and continuing resource disparities, and so mm-hmm. I don't think ultimately, unless we get to that issue, we're really going to solve the problems we face.
0: I mean, really, having uh, having read your book, it feels like the ha- uh, one of the heart or the big issues behind inequality in education is just inequality generally, which I don't think the either political party wants. Is there's a real appetite to tackle? I think petrol prices are a much bigger vote winner. <laughs>
3: Well, yeah, yeah, I, I think that's true. I mean, I think what Gonski shows is there's a, certainly an appetite to tackle inequality in as far as delivering needs-based funding. Mm. Um, not, not that we're doing it, but there's certainly been a lot of talk about it and the desire in, lar- you know, from large parts of the community and, um, you know, political parties to deliver needs-based funding, more funding for disadvantaged kids, yes, mm. address inequality that way. But what... The really hard part of it, right, is what our school system at the moment is doing is effectively creating gated communities, which are mostly populated by um, the children of educated and affluent parents, um, and largely exclude disadvantaged kids, mm. and that is affecting learning outcomes very negatively. And so, I don't the the, the inequality we don't want to address. Is this exclusion the mm. idea that maybe we should have more, you know, more um, socioeconomically mixed schools, mm. which aren't so exclusive, and um, a- and address these concentrations of disadvantage, which are, the, are at the heart of, mm. of the problem in our schools? Mm. Now,
0: personally, growing up, I uh, wound up going to a selective uh, public high school, uh, which I, I I liked and I was a champion of. Um, and I felt as a, coming from a family which probably couldn't afford to send me to an a independent school, I was a fan of. But your book really makes an argument that this is sucking. Um, uh, students f- um, away from the private system. It's, it's basically entrenching inequality. Is there a solution for, to this? Should should selective schools just be for lower socioeconomic people? Um, or a- a- Eric Adams, the mayor of New York, has, has got rid of the test, the selective schools test there, I believe.
3: What, what, what do you think we should do with with selective schools? Yeah, great, great question. So, yeah, I mean, I think the problem here is that the way public systems, particularly in New South Wales, have mm. responded to the unlevel playing field and the competitive dynamic with the mm. private sectors mm. who are better resourced and can pick and choose their students is to become internally selective. Mm. And um, so you have, you know, a, a lot of selective schools in, particularly in New South Wales, and and they combine with the private sector to really suck the high-performing mm students out of comprehensive public schools mm. which makes life very very difficult in those comprehensive schools that's the problem i think you know um the, the we need to be imaginative about the solutions i mean for instance one really smart thing that the new south wales government is doing it's got um it's aurora school which is for um gifted and talented students in rural and remote locations who stay within their local public school but can log online mm. uh, for, for um, kind of um, extension subjects and so on, so um, it, it's uh, to me it's it's partly a response to just being geographically isolated, mm-hmm. but to me it also suggests the way that we can try and balance um, a genuine need to um, to offer extension for you know really um, gifted students, but to inra- to to retain the kind of inclusive. Character of our schools.
0: What's what's the end result here? Do we need to have a massive overhaul, start from the ground up of the education system, so we don't lose another decade, or or is it just more more tinkering that's going to happen?
3: Well, look, what Chris and I argue for is what we a level playing field, and what we mm. mean by that is that all publicly funded schools would be prohibited from charging fees. Mm. All publicly funded schools would be subject to common enrolment regulations. While allowing for um, non-government schools to retain their special ethos, so if you're, you know, a Catholic school, you can preferentially enrol Catholic students, Um, and all publicly funded schools to be funded on a needs basis. Mm. Now, here's the rub, though: to 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 even imagine achieving that, you have to fully publicly fund all schools. I mean, as long Mm. as we continually to continue to partially publicly fund some non-government schools, well, they have to charge fees. And once you charge fees and parents, one subset of parents are paying fees, well, it engenders an expectation that they're gonna get something in return. And the school they're sending their kids to is gonna be better resourced than, than the school down the road. So once you have that user pays element in the system, you're creating a whole imperative that is exactly contradictory to a needs-based outcome, you um, so it's you know it's kind of understandable. Once one subset of parents has to pay fees, that they don't think things should be needs-based. They think it should reflect, mm. you know, fact like that they've coughed up money out of their own pocket. Um, so we're only going to um, we're only going to be able to create a level playing field if we say, look, every school whether it's state-owned and operated or it's non-government, should be fully publicly funded. Mm. Um, we're not that far away from it. You know, most non-government schools are 90%, 95%, even 100% public, publicly funded already in recurrent funding. Um, but once you do that, you say, look, yes, everybody, you know, we if you conscientiously have, have a conscientious preference about the kind of education you want, your child to receive, whether it's a Steiner school, a Montessori school, or a um, a religious school of one variety or another, um, you, you're, you're, you should be entitled to that, and there shouldn't be a final financial penalty associated with that. But what we won't permit is for some um, for taxpayer funding to support some kids have resource advantages over others in similar circumstances. In what are effectively gated communities that exclude mm. um, young people from many parts of the community, um, because that's just arbitrarily preferring it's, it's sustaining a kind of a leader system, and that can't be held to be in the public interest. No, and course. it's really, really harming the learning outcomes mm. of those kids who are, who are excluded. and and end up in comprehensive, free schools.
0: Well, we'll have to leave it there. We're out of time. Uh, Tom, thanks for your time. The book is Waiting for Gonski, How Australia Failed at Schools, which is out on UNSW Press. Uh, Make sure you check out the book um, wherever books are sold, I guess. Thanks for your time. Thanks so much, Dylan. Alrighty, a big thank you to Tom Greenwell for being on the show and talking about his book Waiting for Gonski, How Australia Failed at Schools. Uh, available where all good books are sold. Uh, that's it for this episode of News Fighters. Another reminder, uh, our 100th episode, Best Of, is coming out for free after the election. But if you want it early, it's on our Patreon at patreon.com slash newsfighters. Or if you want to support the show, uh, you can buy me a coffee at buymeacoffee.com slash newsfighters. Uh, don't forget to vote and uh, keep fighting and bye for now.
2: This is News Fighters, where we fight the news so you don't have to.
1: Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. hello?